Welcome everyone to Pem Pem Pals, episode 22. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're so close to being done with the series and there's a lot of excitement still to come. So we're gonna get through it with the help of some fabulous guests. And our fabulous guest today is none other than my brother, uh, John. Hello. Hey, John. Hey, how are you guys doing? Great, glad to have you on. Very excited about this. I'm glad for everybody to, we don't have much of an audience, but uh, I'm glad for everybody to meet you because John has been kind of a mentor to both Ben and I through our early lives into like everything Ataku, everything like he taught us how, he taught me how to play magic completely and then kind of taught Ben and I how to play magic competently. <laughs> Maybe you didn't introduce us to Ava, but you definitely introduced us to a lot of anime that got us excited enough to try Neon Genesis when we had access to it. So in a way, this entire podcast is thanks to you. <laughs> so John, you are a programmer. You work in the video yeah. game industry, is that correct? Yeah, correct. Okay, very cool. And what are there any games of note that you really liked working on in your career? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed working on uh, Warhammer Online and The Simpsons Tapped Out was quite enjoyable working on that. I enjoy working on mobile games. Yeah, it was very fun. John came to Japan when I was living there and I think it was right when The Simpsons Tapped Out was coming out. And uh, I believe that game was not released in Japan. Was that right? That's correct. It was not released in Japan because the opening of the video game is an atomic explosion that destroys Springfield and Fukushima had happened somewhat recently. So they didn't want any negative press or vibes over there. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was a interesting situation yeah yeah so it was released worldwide except japan (laughs) (laughs) do you know if it's still to this day is not available in japan correct whoa (laughs) are they are they simpsons fans there yeah yeah there are simpsons fans there like especially that japanese episode have you ever seen it of the simpsons where there's mr sparkle Yeah, yeah. Homer looks like some... Mr. Sparkle, and the the image ends up being a fish and a light bulb. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Are you still playing Magic? Yeah, I am, but only online because of COVID. Right. We're not going to any tournaments or anything like that, but the new set is called Zendikar Rising. Okay. It's pretty fun. I didn't expect it to be like a tribal set, but it's like a weird tribal set where you're trying to form like D&D parties. Hey, look! Like clerics and rogues and warriors and whatever. I've been playing a lot of limited. Standard was terrible because there was a top deck and then they banned a card from it. And then it still was the top deck. So then they banned a couple other cards from it. So now (laughs) hopefully standard will be good again. So there won't be just one deck that everyone's playing. I've, I've been playing it some in limited. I think it's pretty fun. I love going the Drake Roost. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that's the deck I try to make whenever I see one of those. Yeah, that's a sweet, sweet build. Yeah, that's like a kicker 
synergy deck that like yeah. fits out two two flying drakes it's really fun I, I feel like with all the kicker stuff and then they also have these like lands slash cards yeah that the they're, it's pretty fun for limited because you yeah. can kind of make these flexible decks that like have cards that you can use either early or like late game it definitely helps with flooding out limited because then you get these cards that aren't great but at least you have something to do yeah what is flooding out flooding out is where you keep drawing lands <sighs> and uh you you know your opponent's playing spells and you're not doing anything <laughs> right <laughs> i was gonna say alex is there a peapod update pen pen pals peapod update uh, uh the biggest plant is 10 inches already uh only half of them are really growing because the position of the sun puts like a bush in my neighbor's yard shading half of them the, the, that side is still growing up just very small so we'll see if they'll actually come to fruition the left side of it growing like gangbusters as my mother as our mother likes to say <laughs> uh how about the pem pem pals podcast update? yeah i always like i start asking you the peapod thing and then i like scramble for my phone trying to figure out what i listen to <laughs> oh i know what i can recommend so this uh, podcast that I'm working on just kind of got pulled into last minute. It's called uh, 13 Days of Halloween. Oh. And it's like a spooky fiction podcast that comes out the day after we're recording this. And so it'll be out by the time you're, you're listening to it. And it's kind of like little horror vignettes. And the gimmick is that the audio is kind of extra 3D. Extra 3D? What? What does that mean? Do you know how <laughs> that gets done or? So, so some of it is there are people recording into these weird microphones that it's almost like a head shaped thing with like two microphones where the ears would be. Oh. So you get these kind of extra cues instead of it just being panned left to right. There's actually subtle differences in like how quickly the sound reaches your different ears and kind of how direct or reverberant the sound oh. is. Um, and then we are also using weird uh, plugins to simulate that. That's amazing. How do I get one of those microphones that looks like a head? <laughs> Last time on Kozo's Bizarre Adventure, Seal put us all on a list after Nerve's private screening of the Second Impact found footage documentary. We met Yui Akari and Dr. Akagi, the brilliant women who made the Ava Project possible. Their exploitation and additional expectations placed by society resulted in the untimely death of both, manifesting in a reckless experiment and a tragic encounter with a young Ray. The Magi were completed, corporate chicanery hummed along, and Ava OO was built in the image of Adam. Young Gendo used his vast personal wealth to manipulate everyone into serving his ends, despite almost everyone having major misgivings about his character. Nobody taught Shinji how to comfort someone and it showed after Misato lost Kaji to his clandestine counterintelligence forever. Will Misato and Asuka catch a break after Kaji's murder? Was Nerve created for more than just manipulation and destruction? Is there any way off this merry-go-round? Let's find out. And then this time on, this is episode 22, Staying Human. Asuka's synchronization ratio continues to drop, undermining her self-confidence. Determined to show her worth, she ignores orders during battle. So John, Austin these days? Yeah, I'm in Austin, but it's more like I'm just at home. Like it doesn't yeah. really matter where you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like tons of stuff has closed here. Are you in Atlanta? Yeah, I'm in Atlanta. It feels like, 
I don't know, maybe in part because we just like recklessly like reopen super fast. Seems like restaurants and stuff are doing doing all right. Um, and I guess we had we have a lot of like outdoor stuff already, so that maybe helps. But how about like your bars and stuff? Are those all closed up or? I think it's all like outdoor only and like, I guess most of the bars serve food too. Yeah, I don't know if you're allowed to be a bar here without any food. Yeah, um, like Virginia, I guess. Yeah, so so they kept, um, like for a while they were doing delivery only and you could get drinks delivery too, <laughs> which was kind of like a weird phase. You can't do alcohol to go anymore, but I feel like most of the places that are open anyway have like little outdoor seating areas now. That's nice. Yeah, and restaurants you can do indoors, but I don't, I don't understand why people want to eat in restaurants that badly. Right, yeah, don't want to get sick. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So how many podcasts are you doing right now, Ben? Depends how you count it. This is the only podcast like this I'm doing. And then I think at work I'm on like six projects or something dumb right now. God, that's a lot. Yeah. How do you manage to focus your time? It's it's just like different things. So like this 13 days of Halloween thing just like it was a project they didn't plan well and so basically the last three or four weeks that's all i've been doing so it's just kind of like moved over to that and then you know there's just other stuff that's going on in the background or them just doing some small piece of it is it mainly editing or what yeah some combination of like yeah like audio editing stuff like research and writing stuff nice yeah, yeah, it's kind of like, I think that's one of the fun things about it is that it's still kind of like these smaller projects where you can kind of wear multiple hats and be involved in kind of like different parts of the process. So. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite thing is wearing multiple hats, being a part of a small team. And yeah, man, this episode went by really fast. It's funny because it was uh, a supersized episode. Because they didn't do the uh, opener, you mean? Oh, was there no opening at all? It wasn't just a cold open? I didn't realize that. Yeah, I was expecting the credits to come in, and then I was like, oh, no credits this time. Hmm. I mean, we've kind of been leading up to uh, increased trauma, increased, I don't know, emotional stakes. Uh, I guess it is telling us this is a very different episode than anything we've gotten before. Yeah, you're right. There's no opening music. There's no opening titles. They needed to make time for that, like... 20 second long elevator ride of silence with like zero animation, you know? So they had to get rid of the opening. I forgot to ask before we went into it, you've watched Neon Genesis before, right, John? Yeah, this is my third time. 
how how are you coming into this? Is this a show that you love a lot? Is do you find it formative? I think it's really good. Cody and um, this guy named Alex Meyer originally showed it to me. I had already been watching some anime before that, like Escaflone. and Cowboy Bebop. And so I wasn't on the Ava bandwagon at, as soon as it came out or whatever, but I thought it was excellent. And so you were kind of used to really high quality show animation before you got to this. But so would you say that when you found this, it was even a step up from that? Or do you think it was on par, like the same level of quality as Escafloni and Cowboy Bebop? Uh, I thought the animation, especially for the robot fight scenes or Ava fight scenes was better, but they took a lot of liberties in other episodes where there's almost no animation. Mm -hmm. So I think they were able to save the budget for certain episodes and just actually have like really good animation on key moments. Yeah, that's kind of a thesis statement for the for the show. You hit it on the head. I was, I was gonna say, John, do you remember like how you first watched it? If that would have been like some fan sub download or was it like- It was VHS's- v- VHS. That, Ooh. that cost like, I don't know, they were ridiculous. It was like $20 for like three episodes maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so someone had purchased the box set because they had money at the time and we just all watched it i believe before cody went into the air force oh so it was a real communal experience because you guys all got together to get through it oh that's awesome yeah yeah this is a supersized episode uh in addition to cutting out the opening it's also 29 minutes long where they're mostly 22 minutes long Hmm. yeah i didn't notice that at all watching it felt like it flew by even with the the extended scenes, oh, I just thought they did so well with that. Like, yeah, there is 20 seconds of no animation on the elevator, and there is that repeated sequence. It, ah, we'll yeah. get to it. Okay. I wonder what that means. Like, this was like some, like, a very special episode that they kind of, like, typed up and it had a special spot without ads or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so we got another cold open, uh, and this time a really short but powerful scene a little bit more respect for kaji because you know like whatever he's a piece of shit we hate him i don't like him but uh he kind of you know he isn't just a bad guy but we get kaji very calmly and trying not to be dismissive but you know spurning asuka's advances on him because she desperately wants to be an adult desperately wants to be with him desperately wants i mean she desperately wants someone to treat her like an adult and it seems like her handler if she can get that person to treat her like an adult that's probably her best play at least i don't know what she thinks being an adult is Right. Um, and this is right before episode eight, where they come to Japan. And we find out that Masato was actually the handler who was dealing with Asuka's training in her case before Kaji. So we know that Masato and Asuka have a relationship that predates the show. And we also know that Asuka probably did not like her all the way back then, especially when Kaji showed up and she was like, oh, well, this guy's much better. I thought it may be a less prescient anime that this scene would be more of a fantasy right because it 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 is and we've had that right we've had the 
in the uh, Asuka and Shinji episode where they have to fight the double angel, we have that fantasy, right, of like, oh, this girl shows up in my bed, or we have an assertive sexual young woman. So like, we talked about that, like, oh, maybe my fantasy is I wouldn't have to do anything. I could just kind of be there. Like this episode, you know, turns that around. Oh, there's there's shots in this episode that would be fan service in a lesser anime or in an, even in an earlier episode of the show. There's like, you know, a side shot of Asuka uh, completely naked uh, about to or about not to take a bath, but it's not fan service. It's very uncomfortable. She's having a breakdown and the, the nudity is not, I don't know, it's not purient. It's like you know, she's psychologically nude. She's she's unraveling and she's showing that before us. But that, that was it. Yeah, I, I do feel like Gynex is trying to, like they're walking that thin line and we've talked about it in the past, how maybe there's kind of like fan service and the women are real people, mm-hmm. <laughs> schools of thought, and, and they kind of like want to have both, right? So they kind of, I think feels like they want to give the fans what they want, but maybe not in the exact way that they want it or something like that, trying to split the difference. Um, So then we kind of flash back to Asuka in a hospital or a mental ward. She's holding this doll. Her mother is there. Her mother also has a doll who she is talking to, calling Asuka. And then, you know, we hear her father talking to this this doctor and the the scene kind of ends with the father and the doctor hooking up yeah what a scumbag her father is (laughs) like i know he's lost his wife right or at least he's lost the relationship with his wife because she's not mentally sound anymore but you know going to visit her with his daughter and all he can do is hit on the attending doctor or nurse or whoever that other person is who we assume is also the person hey, that- she she hit on him she's the one who's like i am a doctor but i'm a woman too yeah okay well, <laughs> he's playing like the wounded anyways um but we also find out in the scene that asuka's mother was an advocate for the contact experiments So like she was uh, an early proponent for it and probably was a member of SEAL or NERV or whatever that company was that we went over last episode, Gearin or something that was the precursor. And that's how she lost her mind this way. Uh, They say like, it's funny that the, the biggest proponent for this would end up doing it and then this would happen to her. So her ambitions kind of were her downfall, sort of a hubris case. Did you notice anything about this scene or have any thoughts about it, John? Well, there was a flash of a single ripped doll, Mm. I think like right before the scene. And that I felt like, you know, Asuka, as she's lost her mother and her father's apparently gallivanting around with someone else. There's a lot of biblical stuff in this episode. And there's this quote from the Bible that's like, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I feel like the recurring doll being ripped up by Asuka is sort of about her trying to grow up and throwing mm. away childish Yeah, that becomes like her driving force, like her raison d'etre. Like, wow, that's really smart. So glad you came. I didn't realize that was a biblical quip. Uh, I yeah. didn't know that either. I thought that was some philosopher. I guess it probably was a philosopher, but <laughs> someone writing the Bible, right? No, I didn't, I didn't realize that either. That, that makes the doll imagery a lot stronger. Yeah, and it's like recurring throughout the whole thing. And, and I think this, that is a thing you see kind of psychologically too. I'm, I'm trying to remember 
the name for this, but kind of like these precocious kids who kind of have to mature quickly and, and take care of themselves, but usually then long-term negative side effects mm-hmm. from kind of having to do that, that you kind of mature quickly in some ways, but then end up becoming emotionally stunted in, in other ways. Yeah. And I think that's like what we're seeing with, with Asuka kind of in general in this show and then especially in this episode. Yeah. Oh my God. I love Asuka so much. I just want to, <laughs> you want to reach into the screen and just give her a hug and tell her it's going to be okay, but it's not going to be okay. Nothing will be okay. We passed the point <laughs> of no return. There will be no happy endings. Okay. So we move on in Asuka uh, still in this flashback. She attends her mother's funeral and says that she's not going to cry. I thought maybe some of that was that she realizes she lost her mother a long time ago. Like the timeline's a little blurry because her mother participates in the contact experiment. That causes this mental fracture. She is interned at uh, a mental facility and then she tries to kill, or then she kills herself. And we haven't gotten there yet. Sorry, I don't mean to jump ahead. Anyways, that timeline is a little iffy. But yeah, as soon as she was put into the mental facility, it seems like Asuka believes she's already lost her mother. So when it comes time to grieve her at the funeral, she feels like she's already done it. It doesn't really apply anymore. She's not feeling that emotion. I agree completely. And I also think that you know, crying something that kids do. And she keeps saying how she's going to grow up and become this more mature person like Ben alluded to before. Not into crying. No. Into like (laughs) pouting pouting and yelling like a real adult. Complaining, yeah. (laughs) Hating everything. (laughs) So then she's kind of going through these harmonics tests and kind of what we've been seeing everyone's kind of sync rates go up for the most part so far hers now are going down. I forget which harmonics test they bring this up, but Misato is like, well, it's like her period. Is that what's causing it? And say, no, it's it's something happening at a much deeper level, happening at her subconscious level. And I I was trying to figure out, it's been a couple episodes since we've seen Asuka. She's like upset about Shinji outshining her. Is this still kind of like him having the sync rates through the roof? And so what, what is she upset about? Or like kind of what's, why is, has this trauma been triggered in her now? Yeah, I think it's threefold. So one, she had not a physical trauma, but a, a pain related uh, uh, nerve system induced trauma when I think Zuriel, the one angel with the extendy arms, Mm -hmm. they managed to cut her neural feed before it decapitates her Ava, but they don't manage to get it before it takes off two arms. So she's recovering from that experience. Yeah, she's still uh, a little jealous of Shinji and his starring role that he's taking now. And her one rock who, you know, is distant and still doesn't give her the time that she really deserves as a young person, Haji is also missing. Yeah. And I guess she thinks he's just ignoring her. She doesn't know maybe what Misato knows from that voicemail or that he was this double agent who's been caught, I guess. Yeah. Even if she does have an inkling, right? I feel like your subconscious mind would protect you from that information while you're going through these other traumas, or it would attempt to. Like, 
it's not like she's getting his voicemail and it's full or that. Like his phone's disconnected, which means I don't know something drastic has happened. But she can't think about that right now. She's got too much else to deal with. And I guess yeah, like she had really kind of pinned everything onto him. You know, she doesn't get along with Misato or Shinji or Ray. Mm-hmm. Doesn't ever really interact with Ikari or Ritsuko or anyone. Yeah, and often, you know, like, I think about crushes I had when I was a child, and, like, I did pin, not everything, but I did pin, like, kind of my whole self-worth on, like, all right, we're working up to this thing, and we're going to talk about our feelings with this person. And if it went poorly, it was, like, the end of the world. Yeah. Um, So we learned that they're repairing Unit OO and that they're constructing... 13 new AVA bases around the world. Feels like there's all this new money flowing in and they're worried about something, but feels like it's something that they're keeping from them. I was looking up, so this is the 13th angel this episode. Oh. I don't know if this is more just kind of a numerology thing, just 13 being kind of a weird number, or if there's something kind of specific like that, if these are new new Ava projects to kind of create copies of the the angels that they've been fighting or something like that. Yeah, so they say they're going to focus repair efforts on zero zero, which makes sense because it only lost an arm or, or it just got like punctured as opposed to losing a bunch of limbs like O2 did. But, you know, Asuka is the person in trauma right now and she's not getting the attention or the resources she needs. And just like she's not getting the support she needs, her Ava isn't either. It's not a priority. And I really identify with that. Like, I think everyone in their life will feel like this is what it feels like to be no one's priority. And it's a pretty shitty feeling. Yeah, there is a repeated what's it called of her just being insane feeling of her being lonely Mm -hmm. like ben was saying about kaji was the only one she had to rely on and then the phone call goes to uh it's an unlisted number and you can just sense the loneliness all the time you can cut that out (laughs) (laughs) no it's true like that that is the the crux of this episode that she is alone and kind of has been since she was a child, since her mother went away. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that really is a theme this episode. So after this, we have this scene at home uh, with Pen Pen, Asuka, Misato, and Shinji. You know, they're all just kind of like sitting there doing their own thing. It's interesting. Then we get this phone call, you know, that Asuka thinks it's her uh, unrequited love, Kaji calling for Misato, it ends up being her family. So, so it's kind of like there is this possible connection for her. Yeah. You know, and potentially people that care about her, but she just like, you know, they, it's just this super, you know, what she describes as a superficial relationship, or at least kind of from her perspective, it's just this performative thing she does, but she doesn't actually find any like real connection or or value from it. And I don't know if we're supposed to think that this is maybe that doctor woman that her dad ended up with. Yeah. Um, I think that's who her stepmom is. But it's someone anyway. It's it's not not her real mom, as she says. Right. Yeah. We've all had a really bad day. And that's kind of what <laughs> keeps happening in this episode. Like, oh, she could get a call from someone that really 
that could help her out. But no, it's someone that she has to perform with. It's just more emotional energy and labor to be spent, right? Mm. And then she goes to take a bath and she just can't. She's overcome with this uh, uh, neurotic thought of, I can't, like, I'm so alone and I, and that's fine. I don't want to be with these people. Uh, they make me sick. I don't want to share a bathroom with them. I don't want to even share the same air as them. And she doesn't take a bath. So like, not only are all these things piling on top of each other, but all of her coping mechanisms, everything she has to relax is also failing her. And like, mm. I've been there too. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. The, these people that she's so physically close with, she really can't escape from kind of become suffocating to her, you know, cause she's depressed or, you know, whatever, going through this stuff, even though she is kind of starving for a connection, the people she's actually close to. She doesn't want anything to do with. Yeah, yeah. she hates them. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was really cool how they use the uh, bath as she's staring into it as contemplation. That's like a normal trope in a lot of movies that like, even in like Taxi Driver, when Robert De Niro is contemplating, he's staring into a glass that has bubbles in oh. it. Staring into water is just kind of like a, a thing that they do in film to show that the character is like contemplating inner thoughts. And yeah. Yeah. And we, we have a lot of that in this show, like including like the end sequence is like the moon reflecting in water. And there's a lot of, yeah. I guess when people gain consciousness, that's something that we're also, we often see in this show is kind of that imagery. Huh. Maybe that's what the yeah. uh, end sequence is all was envisioned as like time to think about what you just saw, <laughs> which, you know, like, especially in modern day, 1995, we were kind of, you know, the, the internet was starting to become a real thing. Like, you know, the proliferation of this show was uh, uh, in large part, thanks to the internet, right? Because uh, you and your friends got to watch cassettes, right? But then yeah. less or uh, a year, a couple of years later, me and Ben watch it. And the way we got to it was through downloading off the internet with fan subs. Well, I don't know if it was fan subs. <laughs> Allegedly. Going with the loneliness theme, then we have the scene of uh, Ritsuko and Masato discussing Asuka's declining performance. And, uh, you know, it's kind of about their loneliness as well. Ritsuko accuses Misato of having kind of played house with these children and that it's not what she wants. And then Misato tells her that she's just a cat lady. (laughs) 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 Yeah, actually, I guess we we have seen that Ritsuko has like a cat mug and stuff like that. So they have foreshadowed that (laughs) earlier in this show. And, And I guess we've done a bunch of stuff with kind of Shinji's alienation earlier too. But I guess it's a lot of the characters in this show. It's not just Asuka. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and Ritsuko brings up, or Misato brings up, that it's Asuka's period. Yeah. And Ritsuko, like we said before, like she says, oh, no, 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 that's just a surface level physical thing. That won't matter. It's about her subconscious. And like, she's partially right, but how dismissive of someone's body and like they're experiencing this thing. We don't know how long she's been having her period. She's young enough. She's 14. This might be her first one. Who knows? But I just found they, they often use Ritsuko and, and I guess Masato and Ritsuko together to highlight these ways that 
society does not support women. Mm. It minimizes the extra plights they have. It minimizes their experience of, you know, gendered neurological behaviors. Like men go through cycles too, but it's not as easy to define and as visceral as uh, especially young women having their period because they're not used to those new emotions. They're not used to the pressures, even the physical pains that are going on. And I just really wanted to slap Ritsuko for disregarding it so quickly. And in, in the subsequent scene, uh, Misato and her really get at odds. They really yell at each other. Uh, I think Misato comes back and is like, I'm sorry, we're just under a lot of stress. <laughs> you still got to work with these people, I guess. Oh, and then we get the infamous... The, the elevator scene, right? And this is, I've seen this parodied in things. This was in uh, a, an Ava music video I watched once. I think it's one of the key scenes in that re-death that you turned me back on to. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is Gendo. You may speak. It's Gendo. Gendo, you may speak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll link to that in the show notes. It's like an Ava parody, like a yeah, super really cut. Fun. I want to see the Shinji Misato train scene that had that awkwardly long pause. And I want to see that next to this elevator mm. scene. <laughs> I love how confrontational this episode is. Because, yes, it is to save money to have that shop be so long. But... You know, again and again, they make the decision to, can we save money or can we make a statement? And they're like, oh, well, why don't we just do both? Because it forces you to sit with this awkwardness. Like they just pile on top how alone she is. She's alienated from her housemates. She's alienated from her former, I guess, role models. And now, you know, she's alienated from the other pilots. She's alienated from the person who has probably the most in common with her, at least experientially, of anybody else in the world. They're the only two young women who are piloting Avas. They're the only two young women that work in NERV. They're the only two young women in the world that have these very specific experiences. And yet, shit, she's still mad at Ray. Like, they cannot make this work. Yeah, and she ends up calling the Avas dolls, Mm -hmm. and she calls Ray a doll, which shows that she has no respect for her. She's just an object, just like the Avas are just objects that need to be used. And Ray says, no, but they have a heart and you have to like sync with the heart or whatever. Yeah, pretty heavy projection, right? Because that's the thing that Asuka has always been afraid of is being a doll, being subservient to someone else, you know, not being your own person, not being an adult. Right. Yeah, so like kind of... Asuka is calling Ray a doll and then these Eva's dolls and Ray is saying like, no, the Eva's actually have a heart, but maybe it's also kind of saying like, you think that I'm, you don't see me as a person. You see me as this kind of like subservient like object, but you, you need to treat me like I'm a person too or something like that. Right. Yeah. Without our right saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The doll thing is interesting and it's, it's kind of like weird. I don't think we've heard that describing the the Avas before. I don't think we've even heard Asuka kind of use that term in previous episodes. Yeah, I don't remember it. Uh, and they're, I don't know the medical terms for these. I probably should have asked someone before. 
I did this episode, but uh, people who are on a self-destructive spiral, you know, they often trying to express themselves. They kind of overcharge their attempts and it becomes very confrontational and they end up burning more bridges uh, and really losing any source of support or stability that they could have. And like, you know, this is this episode is the culmination of her self-destructive spiral. Yeah. Uh, and then we get, well, I don't know why they put this scene in, but it seems important. They just have one quick scene of Kensuke and Hikari in the classroom, just noting how many people are absent. Toji's gone, obviously. Mm. And Asuka, Rei, and Shinji haven't are not here today. And like, we assume that Shinji hasn't been there in about a month because he was inside of O1 for that long. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering, part of that scene might be pretty soon after this, when Asuka is kind of violating orders in the angel fight and they're like, oh, we need to like start looking for another pilot. I wonder if that scene is there to make you wonder if Ida or the class rep is going to be the next pilot. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. You're so brilliant. Okay, and then we get this not sweet scene (laughs) of Asuka talking to her Ava and she's kind of taken Ray's advice to heart, but in the wrong way it's like she's so close because she talks to her ava to try to you know develop even if the Ava's not listening to her okay like this develops in her a connection right to take time and do something it makes it more important for you but she's still just like yelling at the ava like like you do what i'm tell you to do and everything will be fine she doesn't see it as a partner she doesn't see it as like an equal relationship she sees it hierarchically like, I am the pilot, I am in charge, you do what I say, and we will survive. <laughs> it's just so sad to see someone miss the point like that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so we learn Unit 01 is grounded from Akari's orders. It's this line like, no surprise after what happened before, um, which I guess is it kind of breaking free of its uh, armor slash restraints and then eating that angel's M2 drive. Mm -hmm. It's interesting though that they specify Ikari is the one who has grounded it Mm -hmm. um, since we know that he maybe has kind of a separate agenda. Yeah, which means it's like part of a plan, right? He needs to keep O1 in reserve to make sure nothing happens to it. Right. So that means O1 is, I mean, we can guess, I guess, but uh, O1 is very important to his, like the final steps of his plan. I loved that we came out into Osaka launches and we come out into a heavily raining sky. One, I love the way rain is animated, uh, uh, however it's animated, like if it's crap, if it's beautiful. Like I thought this was a fairly simple, but well done one. It's kind of just black lines coming down with little breaks in them and repeated. I guess it's just raining just so that the angel can arrive and yeah. uh, pierce the heavens, right? Talk about biblical, talk about like Renaissance, uh, uh, enlightenment art isn't it all about that like depictions of angels like descending from the sky and parting the clouds and these huge rays of light coming down and blessing touching the ground yeah i thought this angel was the most literal in the translation of the word angel mm-hmm. where it kind of looks like a seraph with multiple wings up there it's attacking from the heavens bringing down the rain exactly okay so this is our next angel attack uh, and I completely agree with you. And so it, it's uh, name is 
Ariel, and it's the from different translations, different sources. It is uh, the light, the lion, or the altar of God. The translation used for the wiki fan sites is the light of God, and it's also considered the angel of birds. And like you said, it's kind of the most stereotypical looking angel. Like if you lined up all of them in a row and asked someone who'd never seen the show, which one of these is an angel, this is the one they would pick out. Yeah, it kind of manifests as this heavenly visitation, uh, having this overwhelming presence, almost sickening. It seems to have no physical means of attack. Like we don't know because it never gets close enough to do anything but utilize its AT field in this strange way. But it uses the AT field to project a psychic connection uh, specifically into Asuka's mind, which manifests as this brilliant beam of light from the sky. It's almost rainbow, it's almost pink. It's brilliant. And this marks the second time an angel has made contact with an Ava pilot. Uh, psychically, and it's in stark contrast to the previous one, which was the shadow body. And if I were to compare it now, Leliel, Laleel, that's actually a much more gentle like visitation that Shinji has. Like Asuka really gets the short end of the stick because you would think, oh, this one's from above, it's heavenly, it'll be nice, right? But we're, uh, Ano or the whole team is subverting that expectation again, where we would think that the dark one would be more painful to experience or more all-encompassing. No, that one was actually gentle comparatively. So this one is, even Asuka yelling, she compares it to rape. She says, don't rape my mind. Yeah. And it forces her, I mean, we assume it would force anyone, but it only comes in contact with Asuka, so it forces her to experience these past traumas. Uh, the name Ariel is also has ties to Zoroastrianism, uh, Araman or Angra Menu, which I'm probably butchering that uh, pronunciation, is considered the dark side of divinity, which is associated with the evil mind. And it translates literally to destructive, chaotic, disorderly, inhibitive, and malign mind. So, and you know, you get that juxtaposition, like what we are seeing, this heavenly body, we get the hallelujah chorus in the background, it's very resplendent, but the actuality of it, what's happening, only Asuka experiences that directly. And it's horrifying, it's chaotic, it's disorderly, it's inhibitive, and it's very destructive. And this is the last thing, I promise. But uh, Shakespeare also used this name. It's the name of the sprite in The Tempest, which causes the storm uh, in the beginning of the Tempest. So like the, the being whose power sets off the chain of events that allow the entire play to happen. And Percy Shelley, one of the coolest poets ever, he made mention of Shakespeare's Ariel in uh, one of his uh, poems to two friends of his, uh, comparing himself to Ariel, like the, the visitation uh, from God and his friends to two people interpreting his music. Uh, oh, and it also appears in Milton's Paradise Lost. It's one of the fallen angels that is cast down. Sorry, that's it. Okay, so the angel fires this psychic beam from extreme range. Like, it's too far to hit. Yeah. It's too far to penetrate the AT field. Asuka just does not respond well. I mean, she's at the end of her rope, and now this is when she has to experience this increased trauma, this this violation, right? Yeah, so, you know, there's this beam of light, the hallelujah music is playing. She's screaming. 
Then from the control room, Ritsuko wonders if the angels are trying to understand the human mind, which, you know, we've kind of seen that in a lot of the recent angel attacks, right? So when kind of Shinji got sucked into the, um, the Derek Sea, and, you know, this is kind of going back to this idea that we've kind of looked at or talked about, about, you know, what is the motivation of these angels? Are they really fighting humanity? What are they doing? And, and in some ways, this is kind of like a alien or at least a kind of foreign life, like first contact kind of story. Mm-hmm. And we have kind of another segment about that. And I feel like usually in this kind of stories, it's like the humans are trying to figure out what the aliens are thinking, or they're the ones trying to like communicate. And then maybe the aliens are just attacking the humans. But in some ways, it feels like the other way around. And yeah, I didn't think uh, uh, in both of the the psychic visitations, the angel, or at least I think the angel's consciousness or, or narrative manifests as a younger version of the person they're visiting. Hmm. Shinji talks to a smaller shadow version of himself on the train. And Asuka actually, uh, when there's a second voice there, it's actually a smaller version of her that's kind of taunting her, telling her she's alone. Yeah. So we've had the Ray and Shinji kind of freak out sequences before, mm-hmm. tricky sequences. And now we have the, the Asuka one. We have this kind of big reveal, you know, that Asuka's mother killed herself and kind of wanted to kill Asuka as well, or maybe to kill the doll that she thought was Asuka. Mm -hmm. And then I think in some ways parallel to how Shinji had that kind of fantasy sequence with Asuka, Rei, and Misato, you know, saying things to him kind of back to back, and there was some repetition there. We have this sequence of kind of Asuka talking trying to remember now like exactly it's like three or four things kind of looped yeah i think it's i'm asuka langley soryu this is my chance uh i'm an adult i'm asuka langley soryu nice to meet you are you an idiot my chance i'm an adult so look at me And then she says, that's not me. Yeah, each, yeah, each time it shows her, each time it plays for her a different voice coming out of her body, uh, she refuses it. She's like, that's not me. It's very abstract, but it's kind of like she's still trying to fight for who she is, what her sense of identity is. And so she has to push off all of these illusions one at a time, which just forces us to sit with it, right? Like an artsy film where there's one, I can't remember the name of it, but it starts with like a car crash or like a multiple car pileup of like 20 cars in a row. And it's the the beginning of the movie is a slow three minute pan. And like, you can't escape it. You can't get away from it. There's nothing to do. You just have to sit here and experience it. And that final destination. (laughs) 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 Art movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's my favorite art house movie. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So that, like, I'm Asuka Langley, just kind of from all the Freudian stuff they've done in past episodes. I mean, that feels like a very, like, ego identity thing. Mm. And then there's that, you know, like, 
look at me or whatever, mm-hmm. which is like her kind of pulling her shirt down and it's kind of a, a memory of that first scene with Kaji. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if that's supposed to be like her feeling like shame about that or like him rejecting her. Mm. Or saying that she's a woman mm. or sexually active or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely her intent when she was saying those words. Right. And yeah, I guess the angel is like using them as like a bludgeon to like throw back in your face. Be like, hey, this is you. And you're like, no, 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 no that's not... That's not all of me. Don't define me by those, like, maybe not moments of weakness, but maybe, you know, like, moments of desperation. Because she doesn't like to see herself that way, right? She likes to see herself as strong, as confident, as the fucking best. And it's all been taken away. Uh, Before we move on, what did you guys think about the words that were flashing? I didn't catch them. So, like, at the first time that the angel is invading her mind, it's, like, too fast for me to read. But the second time, it definitely says no death in German, or it may be death, no. Mm. It says ein Todd, Todd is death. Well, if nobody has any thoughts. We <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I just hadn't, uh, uh, I didn't catch it. Yeah, I was trying to go back and kind of look at that again. Yeah, they slow down the words the second time, so you just see the German words. But the first time, it's just like, it looks like a couple of words and they flash very fast and I couldn't read it. This is right at the end of her like freak out sequence, right? Uh, let me pull it up. Oh, that is fast. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. They do a lot of this strobing animation in this show. I don't know, you don't see much of that this, these days. I always think of this story about like, you know, a bunch of kids getting seizures watching Pokemon. Pokemon. <laughs> and like, did we like ban doing that? I mean, like they include a lot of it on this show, but but it is something that you just, I feel like you don't see very often in animation is kind of like strobes as extreme as the strobes in this. Mm-hmm. God damn it. I cannot catch this fucking thing. <laughs> I guess Netflix online does not allow you to go frame by frame but so there is a japanese part Mm -hmm. where it's saying things like no stop bad death Hmm. oh so are they are they her thoughts right yeah that's i didn't know huh maybe the most coherent one the one that we actually can see a little bit and the one that you caught no death and the reason why it's in german is because that's her first language that's what Asuka usually thinks in. And so as it's trying to make contact, it's running through all of these connections, trying to establish some base of language. And then the best it can get out is no death. Like, don't kill me. <laughs> but, but, you know, that just gets lost in the cacophony and the chaos. And it doesn't work. It's, the angel still dies. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. But that is a great question. Whose thoughts are they? Does it show... Japanese and German or Japanese, English and German? Definitely Japanese and German, which are the two languages that Asuka mainly speaks in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's like German, Japanese, but U.S. citizen, which is kind of weird. (laughs) Which is a U.S. citizen? Yeah. Here's another thing weird about Asuka. So her first name is from another anime, which I've never heard of. Something called like Gunblaster or something. Oh, Gunbuster. Sorry, another Ano film. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Her second name is Langley, mm-hmm. which is the location of the CIA headquarters <laughs> and also 
a World War II American aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And her last name is Shoru. Then what is it? Shoru, I think. Shoru, yeah. Yeah. And that is a World War II uh, Japanese aircraft carrier. So she's named after two different aircraft carriers hmm. on opposite sides of the war, which is kind of interesting. And she's the culmination of German, Japanese, and a U.S. citizen. Ah. We, we first see her. It's an aircraft carrier episode, right? Mm-hmm. That sea battle. Yeah. They transport her and her <laughs> Ava on aircraft carriers. Wow. So she does stand at this confluence of those three cultures and post-World War II, you know, there's a lot of commentary on the bomb in World War II in this. That became, you know, a economic allied powerhouse, right? West Germany, Japan, and America, because America was propping up both of those nations to make sure that the world saw what you could do economically with the U.S. as your friend and to make sure the world saw, look, Communism is not going to get you what you want. You need to be our friends and then your economy will do well. Mm. Like that's an unsustainable system though. And so maybe she's the culmination of like the instability within that global hegemony, right? Because like America, she portrays herself as the best, even when she's losing it. She's like, no, 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 no. That's not who I am. I'm the best. I'm the the first combat uh, AVA pilot. I have the best sync ratios. And even when it's falling apart, she puts on that face and it can't last forever, right? U.S. global hegemony will end someday. Yeah, yeah, that is a very U.S. attitude. I am the best. We are the best. The best nation. Best, best, best. I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. That's funny because I I didn't thought about her as American. And like she grew up in Germany, right? And she's spending time in... Uh, Japan now, but the American influence is right there beneath the surface. Brilliant. Yeah, and it, I think there is a way to kind of like interpret her story as kind of, you know, she's like this outspoken foreigner and like, you know, and, and maybe kind of like this Japanese view of like the Western woman as, you know, she doesn't want to be subservient and follow orders like Ray and kind of hostile towards like that style of femininity or like being a woman in the world. You know, she thinks that um, it's not the way to go. Even, even some of the stuff in this episode, like, you know, like taking a bath in someone else's bath water, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not something that I'm like super into. Right? <laughs> And that's like, you know, culturally in Japan, that's like something that like families do. You just drop the bath once and then people like um, will will bathe in a sequence. Oh, yeah. But typically you uh, you rinse yourself off outside of the bath, right? Before you get in. But yeah, there's still skin cells and all those oils and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. that still comes off for you. It's floating in that water. And I think too, maybe the the imagery in this episode of like, you know, all those cloaked figures walking by um, is like a little bit the, the feeling that anyone would get, but maybe especially if you feel distant from Japanese people, like walking through a crowded subway station in Japan or something like that, you know, so... Part of Asuka's isolation might have to do with kind of her foreignness mm. as well, or those kind of cultural differences. Yeah, definitely. 
the the train yard uh maybe i just haven't seen enough abandoned train yards but it reminded me of the the ghost train yard from final fantasy 7 and then the mm. cloaked figures coming through where you never get to see their actual form underneath it really reminded me of the sephiroth remnants in 7 that you keep encountering on your way to confront sephiroth for the first time and then when she gets her one glimpse of what's under, we see there's some sort of an outline of like a vaguely human frame, but the the coloring, the texturing we get, it looks just like, uh, what's that game? Earthbound. Like the boss you fight at the end where you don't see its form. It's just this repeated pattern with like these uncomfortable images embedded within it, but you can't, it's hard to make them out because it's just this repeating globulous like, red and black yeah for sure and i'm sure you know like this is very popular i'm sure maybe people making those games uh uh took a look at this although i don't know when they came out uh, earthbound might predate this i digress and then she sees in that scene she she calls out for kaji right like to help her to not be alone yeah and she got that line from masato earlier you guys mentioned she says like oh that must be kaji calling for you masato and she doesn't put down her beer and she says that won't be happening. And it's still left mildly ambiguous to Asuka, but I thought maybe this scene was a realization, like he's gone. Mm. And where she looks for him mentally, Kaji's not there. It's Shinji in his place. You know, like she has been developing these feelings for Shinji kind of in spite of herself. It's not really the direction she wants to go, but it's happening nonetheless. Or maybe she is jealous, but kind of admires him because he does, he is able to pilot the Ava the way he is. But she's very frustrated with it because Shinji is not the person she always envisioned. She thought it would be someone like Kaji. She thought it was going to be Kaji, but like Shinji does not act like that. He's not confident. He's not, he doesn't know the right things to say to a girl, which can be very frustrating for a young person to have feelings for someone that you did not think you ever would. And right after that, right after she has this vision, I think that's when Shinji offers to launch. He's like, I'll go up there. I'm going to help them. And Kendo's like, no. <laughs> if anything happens to you, we've all lost. So you just stay right there, okay? But he does make a contrition. That's not the word I'm trying to use. But anyways, he does agree to do something, right? And he tells Ray, who has just fired a shot at the angel and uh, hit the mark, but it's too far away to penetrate the AT field. He tells Ray to go retrieve the Lance of Longinus from Adam's body. I don't think we've said it, but I think that place where Adam is uh, crucified on the cross is called Terminal Dogma. Mm. Mm. So Ray in OO, while Asuka is still being assaulted by this thing, uh, she descends into the bowels of Nerve HQ and retrieves this lance from the crucified Adam body. Uh, and there was one line that said, passing like Malbolgi 6, which Malbolgi is, yes. uh, it's one of the circles of hell. And it's uh, uh, the Lord of Hell in Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Spawn is funny, he's our man. If you can't kill him, no one can. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and also interesting that it's six, because six, six, six. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the opposite direction of heaven, right? Mm -hmm. That's very cool. And there was this weird, I couldn't tell quite what it was. Maybe it was just a random geometric uh, uh, shape, a polygon in the background, but it looked like there was a D20 just floating in the background of that scene uh, where Asuka <laughs> retrieves the lance. 
And there's that disconcerting, very short, but beautifully animated where Ray takes the lance out and then (laughs) Adam's legs like instantaneously regenerate, but it keeps the little human leg potato pupae things. Like, ugh, just... Thank you. Thank you, Anno, for including that. <laughs> it will haunt my dreams forever. But that, that seems to be it. I guess taking the lance out doesn't allow Adam to completely reactivate. It just allows it to regenerate its lower portion. Right. But maybe the growing legs like symbolize that now it can move. Mm. Like in future episodes or something, maybe. Something's happening. We're there, man. We're going to get all these questions answered about that thing in the basement with seven eyes. <laughs> Maybe people with more religious background than me, this is obvious to them, but I was looking up, I guess that lance is this spear that Jesus was stabbed with mm-hmm. to uh, confirm yeah. he was dead when he was on the cross. And that in kind of some old mythology, kind of like the Holy Grail, it's some sort of object imbued with power that knights searched for and yeah supposedly if you possess it you are invincible Hmm. they even mention it in like hellboy they talk about hitler's forces uh, acquiring the lance of longinus and their power increasing tenfold because they had they could have a a soldier go onto the battlefield who was unstoppable unable to be harmed yeah is it also called the spear of destiny yes okay yeah, and it, yeah, it, uh, I think that's the more popular name in pop culture. Like it appears in fuck that terrible Constantine adaptation with uh, <laughs> what's his name. I mean, it's an okay movie. John. It's just like why would you call it Constantine? Did you want to call it like John Wick Zero or something? Sure, there you go. We'll call it John Wick Zero, and that's that's the reason he moved to Japan. I gotta get away from all these demons and angels. Demon. You keep hounding um, th- This probably wouldn't go in the podcast, but just a uh, random thought. So when I was looking up the, the lands, it, you know, it talks about it coming up in a like Wagner opera. Mm-hmm. And I was recently looking something up about like the, the ring cycle, which I've like heard about many times in my life, but like always like these passing things. It's like this famous opera and it did all these like musical motifs for different characters and things. And it's like, you know, supposed to be this like grand masterpiece. And I was looking up, evidently it's like 15 or like 18 hours long. So it's like basically unwatchable, but in looking stuff up like Nibelheim, which is like the place Cloud is from, that's from the ring cycle. That's like where the dwarves live. This is also kind of like inspiration for Lord of the Rings and a bunch of other early fantasy stuff. So I just wish, I don't know, I tried watching some of it and once it got to like the opera, like the orchestral stuff still feels pretty like cool and like listenable with modern ears but as soon as the opera singing starts i'm just like i i can't do this (laughs) i can't do this for like 15 hours like (laughs) yeah that's a long time what did you think about handel's messiah in this then since it's also kind of like operatic Uh, were you just like i don't think i've watched a single opera unless is uh is the nutcracker is that an opera yeah, it's yeah, it's a ballet piece, but it has uh, ballet. Uh, I think it has singing in it. So yeah, that would make it an opera. The difference between ballet and opera is very thin. Fair enough. Yeah, is that the? Sorry to keep going on this, but that's a really interesting topic. Is that the 
the opera that Hitler was obsessed with? I, I think so, yeah. And it's kind of, yeah. I guess that's like the other thing Wagner is known for, his association with Nazism. And one thing I didn't realize until I was looking this stuff up the other day is like he died in the 1880s. So he was like generations before that I think he was like a German nationalist and like was pro-German and anti-Semitic, like basically like a hundred years before Hitler. And so then Hitler kind of adopted him. Did you say 1880s? Yeah, yeah. That's not like a hundred years before Hitler. Okay, well... 20, right? Hitler participated in World War I. Mm-hmm. I guess, okay. So, 60 years before the rise of Hitler mm-hmm. into the... They already had a theme song. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot closer than at least I was taught when I was growing up. Like, we were not... I was not taught that there was a direct relationship between the American Civil War uh, and the post-Civil War like Jim Crow laws and Nazi Germany. Like that's where Mm. Hitler and his power structure took their lessons from. They were like, oh, we want to make Jewish citizens second-class citizens. And this is how we do it. We enact these laws just like they did in America. Yeah, the Americans figured it out. Let's just copy them. It's fine. (laughs) And if, uh, uh, sorry, this is just an aside, but if you guys have not seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. Bill Plimpton who you turned me on to, John. Uh, he did yep. a full-length mockumentary called Hitler's Folly. Uh, it's only about an hour long, and it is um, that Wagner opera you talked about deals heavily with it. It's really awesome. It goes through a, a, an imagined history of the Nazi party and Hitler's rise, but it's an allegory for Disney and the, oh. the monolithic structure that that is, because Bill Plimpton fucking hates them. He thinks that they are the devil that kills animation. And Disney also was a... Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, at least least a racist, right? Like there's that thing that got taken out of um, Fantasia. I think there was originally this like um, extra piece in it that had like a bunch of uh, centaurs and then this one like evil black centaur and... I don't know. Look it up. I'm probably getting this completely wrong. No, you're but. probably exactly right. I mean, he's the one. <laughs> like, Song of the South was produced under his his vision, right? Yeah. And the original Dumbo. Uh, anyway, sorry. That was uh, a great tangent. I don't know how much of that'll stay in, but uh, thank you, Ben. And thank yeah. you, Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking proto Nazi asshole. Okay, so Ray gets the Lance of Longinus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they make the stakes really high there. They they really give it a sense of urgency because they keep cutting back to Asuka. They keep cutting back to, uh, you said it was Handel's Messiah? Yeah, that's the music. Mostly they use the Hallelujah Chorus, but I noticed there's two other bits in there. Ugh, I'm glad you brought it up because I was going to forget to mention it. Like, it is an awful juxtaposition, right? Because it is meant to show you like, oh, look at this glorious thing. And then it shows you what's happening inside of Asuka's mind. And you're like, oh, maybe this glorification of an alien intelligence visiting uh, a young person. Oh, and it is very much like, um, I never thought about that parallel, but uh, uh, the Virgin Mary, right? Like Asuka's still a virgin. Yeah. She's having her period, so she's of childbearing age. And she gets visited by, oh, okay. So in, I think it's Uriel that visits 
her in the Bible. I could be wrong, but that's an angel uh, uh, often mistranslated or associated with this one, Ariel. And that would make it very similar to the, the visitation of uh, 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 Mary in the Bible. Yeah, and that's very interesting that you brought that up because Asuka says before that she was being raped mm-hmm. and then she eventually says she was like defiled. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's interesting, her being compared to the virgin mother and then this angel coming in and... It's Kaji Joseph, is that where we're... <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> and we get that tragic and really strong characterization which is you know true in the real world like people who suffer sexual assaults uh especially people who don't get to confront i don't know i guess you wouldn't really want to confront your assault or maybe you would but uh people who don't get to confront it in a uh, or work through it in a safe environment they often blame themselves afterwards in some regard right they may not think this was all my fault but she says like oh i'm dirty now i like i'm not you know i'm not clean anymore like, that's not true, but she feels that way. And she feels like she's less than now. Yeah, 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 for sure. Here's my pitch. Let's make a new Evangelion reboot that really does a bunch of Catholic Virgin Mary imagery in it. Okay. Like, I want, you know, like, those, like, candles, like, the, like, Mexican candles? Mm-hmm. I want, mm-hmm. like, those dope that kind of dope imagery in anime form. Okay, cool. Let, uh, <laughs> we can litter uh, uh, nerve with them. That'll be the only source of light will be fresh and Mary candles. <laughs> okay, so thankfully, uh, Ray lets fly the the Lance of Longinus and we see that it is, it's almost like it's alive. Like it knows what to do. Because one, it changes form mid-flight it goes from being a bident to a single point, which is real smart because logically, if you were going to pierce something, you would want to keep it, you would want the point of impact to be as small as possible, right? Because that's how like piercing works. Uh, when it encounters the AT field, it changes form again. Like trying to get through, it unfurls to kind of get a grip and then re-solidifies as it pierces through the AT field and takes out the angel. It even gives us like this weird little, you know, warpy black hole effect as the angel disappears. Different than previous angels. They mostly exploded and this one kind of imploded. Yeah. And it's like the exact same shade of red as like the other angel orbs that we've seen. Mm. And like while it's flying through the air towards the angel, like I noticed that like at one point it looks like it's just an orb, just based on perspective or whatever, Mm -hmm. but- Visually telling us that they have a common origin maybe. Yeah, that's what I think. It's something that Nerve did not create. Right. Okay, and then, yeah, so the Lance of Longinus pierces the angel and then it would have just gone off into space, but it, interacts with the moon's gravitational pull and ends up uh, in orbit around the moon. So it's like, it's still here. It's not lost, but it's unattainable. They have no means of going to get it, right? I don't even know if they have serviceable shuttles at this point. It seems like all global funds are diverted into AVA production. Right. So thankfully the ordeal is over, right? And they say Unit 02 is virtually unharmed they're like funeral 2 is fine it's in great condition you're like cool asshole you're kind of missing the point here right uh and asuka 
is like the Unido 2 is in the background and we get to see how small she she looks and how small she feels in comparison to it. Ah, it's really beautiful. There's caution tape, right? Like inexplicably there's caution tape surrounding the area that she's in. And Shinji walks up to it and says to her like, hey, you're okay. I'm really glad to see you. But he's unable to cross the barrier, right? Like this caution tape ends up being a physical manifestation of that hedgehog's dilemma. He can't figure out how close to get. Um, And like these words are not doing anything for Asuka. In fact, she reacts quite violently to them. Like, I don't want to talk, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what she says, but he, he repeats the same mistake that he had with Masato in the previous episode. Mm -hmm. She's distraught. She's going through something and you, Shinji can help. He is actually the person in the best position to help them, but he doesn't have the training or he, no one ever taught him that staying with someone, being physically present, holding them, being attentive. It doesn't all have to be, I can solve this problem. I know the right things to say. It can just be, I will sit here and be vulnerable with you. It doesn't have to be anything specific, but he, yeah, he's, he, he was never taught this. He's unable to do it. And so Asuka doesn't get the help she needs, just like Masato didn't. And Masato, like it's showing in her behavior, right? She is quicker to anger with Ritsugo. She is, she will deal with lots of Ritsugo's shit because she's just at the end of her rope. Sorry, did anybody have any thoughts about those last few moments? Oh, the, I didn't get this. Did O2 come out? Did it launch without a shoulder pylon? Because in the end there, it's missing one of its shoulder pylons. And I wondered if it tore it off in the convulsions or if it just didn't have a pylon to begin with in the scene. Not sure. Yeah, that's weird. But I do think that there's the kind of attention to detail in this show that it is intentional for some reason. You know, it could just be that it looks cool, but... They definitely thought it out. Hmm. I'm not sure how much stuff in the show is actually, it just looks cool. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of depth and thought put into all of this. So that's it. That's where we leave the episode. And then we get a next time on, which explains to us all of the events of the next episode. (laughs) It's funny, it shows us less than it ever has before from the next episode. It's just one still, and it doesn't even look like something that will be in the episode. It looks like a production photo. And yet, they tell us more than they ever have before. They lay out the events of the next episode while showing us very little. And I don't know if that's an increasing commentary on the relationship between the fan base and the the show as it was coming out that people wanted more and they're like, okay, here, do you want more? You wanna know what's gonna happen in the next episode? Here you go, here's what's gonna happen. Are you happy now? Now you know everything is gonna happen and you don't get to experience it as it happens. Cool. This is a little abusive, I feel. <laughs> the question we've been asking a lot of the guests, John, do you have any um, recommendations for other series? You know, maybe especially something, if you think someone's a fan of this show, something else that people might like? Uh, I guess if you like big robot mechs and sort of different nations, 
Escafloni is very good. It is more of a what do they call it? A shoujo. It is a girls' anime, but at the time it was coming out in the West, we didn't understand that there were animes made for different audiences. We just thought it was anime. So I think it's very good, but it is a romance at its heart. But the mech's designs are really cool, and the animation's pretty decent. Other than that, everyone should watch Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And is there anything you've seen recently or anything for the season? Yeah, the last thing I watched was that really good. It's a movie, but the name escapes me. It's not the girl who left her time. It's... Um, is it Your Name? Yeah, Your Name. If you get a chance to watch that, it's very good. It's not really as action-packed or whatever there are big mech fights but it's it's really good that's awesome okay well thank you for coming on this has been a real joy yeah is there anything you would like to plug anything you're working on no (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think everyone should support their local food banks if possible Thank you. (laughs) That is an excellent recommendation. Okay, cool. And uh, Ben, how do people contact us if they they so choose? We are pppalspod at gmail.com and pppalspod at Twitter. I don't think we've gotten any messages recently. So uh, (laughs) please, uh, if you have any thoughts or questions, send us something. Leave us a review on iTunes. Ten. Ten. Pals. 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 Uh, <laughs> nope, nope. You just get that one. <laughs> oh, well. well, okay. This is a special guest, so okay. We'll do one more time. But you have to leave the first one in. That's fine. We'll have <laughs> All right, Ben. Pen. Pen. Pals. 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 Pals.